Welcome back to the KPL Podcast. I am your host, Shagisha Patel. And I am that other host, Ryan Drinker. We have a great show for you today. We have the incredible author, Ken Follett. Yes, we've already done the interview, and boy, oh boy, we can't wait to share it with you. He tells us about his latest book, Never, and this is an interesting thriller. I love the premise of this book. And I also love his accent, so look for that. <laughs> Actually, that was me. <laughs> hey, an English accent gets me every time. And not just espionage and thriller, we do have another Missouri Bicentennial history segment just ahead. And so let's just get started. We have a very exciting guest this week here at the KPL Podcast. Kim Follett is easily one of the world's most successful authors. Pillars of the Earth, Eye of the Needle, Fall of the Giants are just a few of his award-winning epics. Kim is returning to the world of espionage thrillers with his latest title, Never, and he joins us today to talk about it. Thank you for joining us, Kim. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on the show. We're very excited. Our patrons love your book, love your books in general, and your book Never, which is not out yet, is they've already got, already has like 51 holds on it. It's actually, it's actually out today. Oh, okay. So you're, you're in the States, aren't you? It's out in the States today. Yeah. Okay. So tell us about the book. What will readers find inside the book? Well, this is a, a story set in the present, but it's inspired by events of about a hundred years ago. I was studying the outbreak of the First World War for a book called Fall of Giants. And I was struck by how none of the national leaders at the time wanted to have that war, but they each made decisions which step by step escalated the crisis until it became a war that nobody wanted. And I thought, could that happen again? Could we have a world war that nobody wanted? Uh, and then, of course, I, I had the thought that is the beginning of all my stories, which is, could I write a story about that? World War Three, such a frightening proposition. Yes, and um, you, you won't know uh, whether it actually happens until the very last page of Never. Uh, but <laughs> but um, we certainly get to the brink. Uh, and you're right, it's more frightening now than it was in July 1914 because uh, just because the weapons that we have are so much more destructive. Mm -hmm. uh, the First World War was terrible and killed millions and millions of people, but there was never any real prospect of destroying the planet. Uh, but now we do indeed face that kind of prospect. So uh, a story like this, um, it, it's in what it threatens, it's quite dark. Mm -hmm. Especially with some of the weapons, the drones type weapons that we have. So uh, would it be possible to tell us maybe what one decision would be that could have could lead down this path? Well, um, there is uh, it's it starts with something small as the First World War started with an assassination in Sarajevo. The victim was the nephew of the emperor. So not the worst thing in the world. I mean, tragic indeed, mm -hmm. and um, but not the worst thing in the world. And in never, uh, an American soldier is killed by a, a, a terrorist, a, a, an African terrorist, uh, using a Chinese rifle. And that's the beginning. Uh, it's not in itself a very big incident, uh, but it annoys um, it, it, it annoys the American people. Uh, 
American people are always very angry when one of their own gets killed. And um, the president has to do something about it. And what she does about it leads to something else. And so we have this, uh, and this happens in world affairs all the time, this slow but sort of inexorable uh, escalation mm -hmm. of a crisis. <clears throat> a little crisis becomes a bigger crisis and it becomes a major crisis and like that. So uh, one question we enjoy asking our authors is is about their research. Could you talk to would you talk to us about maybe the research that goes into your books? Of course, um, I interviewed quite a lot of interesting people for this book um, and um, asked them uh, what they thought could be the flashpoints that could lead to another major war. Uh, one of my, for example, I uh, interviewed the woman who. Um, was for some years in charge of foreign policy of the European community. Uh, I interviewed a, a former, former prime minister of this country, former UK prime minister, who was very kind to, to give me an interview. And also a lot of academics who study um, uh, things like Chinese foreign policy, uh, life in China, what's happening in, in North Africa, the Sahara, a lot of this, lot of this story in Never takes place in the Sahara Desert, which is a very, a, which is a bleak landscape. And um, in this kind of story, you know, the landscape often, uh, often, as it were, represents the mood of the story. And this is a bleak landscape. Um, uh, so I, so I interviewed those people. A lot of reading. There's always a lot of reading. I like to visit places, but um, I wrote this mostly during lockdown and I couldn't go anywhere. Um, and also, there, fortunately, I'd been to China several times and I've, I've been to Washington, D.C. many times and, and, and been inside the White House and met with people there and so on. Um, so all that's not familiar, but I'm less familiar with North Africa and the Sahara Desert. Uh, I'm not sure. The, the most of the action, the North African action takes place in a country called Chad and it's lawless. And uh, I'm, I'm I was kind of glad of the excuse of lockdown because I would have been terrified to go there. Uh, you know, I would have been afraid that 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 um, I'd get shot and never write the novel. So uh, um, but there's a great asset to writers doing research now called Google Earth. Mm -hmm. You can see a satellite photograph of anywhere on the planet, and uh, and they, and and they're detailed and they're good photographs. And so, in fact, although I would much rather go to the places, generally speaking, it is a terrific fallback to be able to do that, isn't? It? I mean, that's um, you know, that's made that's that's um, changed the lives of us writers <laughs> well, not just you writers there there i will admit to some days uh, at the library just going i want to take a trip to the vatican today let's see what that looks like and then just get on google Earth. and you can you can <laughs> actually there's a game out there where they you can drop yourself in the middle of just anywhere and you have to figure out where you are and you have a certain number of guesses you can walk around and look around and then you have just uh, it's a good way to learn geography <laughs> Yeah, much better than sitting in a classroom. <laughs> oh, yeah. So you've had a long and distinguished career. So I imagine you've done hundreds of these interviews. 
Is there a question you would lo- wish that interviewers would ask you? Uh, you know, I can't think of one. Um, uh, you know, I, uh, I'm enjoying doing publicity for this book because it doesn't involve me going to the airport. Mm-hmm. Uh, I enjoy this part, you know, meeting people and meeting readers also and booksellers. Um, but what I used to hate about the old fashioned book tour was the amount of time that I had to spend in the departure lounge and uh, you know, driving to the airport, driving from the airport, all of that, all of those, all of those evenings on my own in hotels. I didn't like that very much, um, but I enjoy this part. And people do occasionally surprise me. A, a journalist asked me once, she said, um, I've heard that uh, you don't believe in God. You're an atheist. Is that true? I said, yes, that's true. Uh, I was raised in a very religious family, and um, but I, I'm not a believer anymore. And she said, where'd you get your strength? That was a good question, wasn't it? Uh-huh. Well, I yeah. guess a lot of people are strengthened by their religious belief. That helps them to get through life, helps them to be strong in the face of adversity. And I thought, okay, and, but I'm not feeble in the face of adversity. And I thought, well, where do, where do I get my strength? And the answer I came up with quite quickly um, was from the people that love me. Mm-hmm. That's where my strength comes from, from my family mainly. Uh, and I, that was that was one of the questions that has surprised me and really interested me actually. But I can't. But you'll have to think of them. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to get you to do the work for us, kid. Yeah. <laughs> so speaking of doing the work for us, being librarians, one of the things that we just simply devour is readers' advisory. We we want to know what we should be reading next. Uh, so. Could you share with us your favorite book or something that you're reading currently? Uh, what I'm reading at the moment is, an, is a, a, a thriller called Cemetery Road, and it's by Greg Isles. Uh, and uh, really, of all thriller writers, well, he's one of my favorites, certainly. And what I like about Greg Isles is that the stories are about something. There's a sort of dimension of, I mean, then most of them are set in the Deep South, uh, mostly in Mississippi, which he clearly knows intimately and passionately, which helps. Uh, and but they're often the murders are often related to the past, the civil rights era, and 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 the and lynchings in the fifties and and all of that. And and so to me, that's a much more satisfying type of thriller because it's about something that is genuinely concerning. Uh, a thriller where it's all made up, you know, like a, I don't know, a heist, a caper story, a heist, uh, a murder, a straightforward murder mystery. They're very enjoyable, but you know, um, you read, you read them in two or three days and, and a month later you've forgotten, but Greg Isles stuff stays with you because of that, that very haunting uh, landscape mm-hmm. of, Mississippi, the river. He writes a lot about the river and so on. And um, I've liked it. I've, I've, there are probably about 20 books, and I think I've read most of them. I've really enjoyed all of them. I think he's a terrific writer. The other thriller writer I really like, of course, is Lee Child, um, who is also, he's become a pal of mine. I, I was a fan before we met and became friends. And uh, I, devour, I devour those books. Um, I think he's too... <laughs> He does something. Now, Lee does something, you see, that not many of us can do. He's invented a prose style 
that perfectly matches his character. Ian Fleming did that as well. Ian Fleming's sort of rather hip use of brand names and so on fitted the image of this secret agent who was also kind of a playboy. Uh, and But not many of us do that, you know. I mean, it's I don't think you would... Well, I don't have uh, a long-running... Uh, you know, I don't have a continuous hero who appears in several novels anyway. Um, but it's but there are lots of those heroes, and not all the writers have developed such a brilliant prose style as as Lee has. So um, yeah, there are two people I really like very much. I read a lot of nineteenth century fiction, mm -hmm. particularly English and French, but also also some Russian, because that was the golden age of my kind of storytelling, you know, books with a plot and characters and, uh, you know, reverses and surprises. And that's the kind of thing that I really love. Happily, um, if you look at the bestseller list, it's also the kind of thing that most people who love novels want to read. Most books on the bestseller list are, are not unlike a, 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 a 19th century. I mean, of course, the, the language is a bit different and so on. But in their basic structure, I think the Victorians laid down for us, beginning with Jane Austen, laid down for us what a novel was supposed to be, the structure of a novel. And, and really, that, that has never been bettered. I have to agree. Charles Dickens was another one who kind of laid down the structure, though he did it in a serialized form when he was publishing. But I feel like he's also one of the authors that uh, people, the way he writes, I think people should love. Absolutely. And I, as it happens, I just read The Mystery of Edwin Drood, which is his unfinished novels. I read all the Dickens novels um, years ago and I reread them constantly, but I had never picked up Edwin Drood because it's not finished. And I thought, okay, this is going to be fresh Dickens that I've never read before. And even if I, and I knew that I was never going to find out who, who the murderer was. Uh, um, and they, more, more books have been written about who was really the murderer in Edwin Drood than, <laughs> than you could shake a stick at. But, um, uh, uh, you know, and it, it's just a pleasure to read Dickens anyway just because mm -hmm. the richness, the richness of that prose style. Uh, of course, a, a Victorian novel will have coincidences that the modern reader would not swallow. Think of Oliver Twist. Um, uh, the, uh, he, he, they go on a, Fagin takes all the boys on a, on a stealing spree and um, a, a, some books are stolen from a man uh, who 250 pages later turns out to be Oliver's uncle, I think it was. Or so, mm -hmm. uh, somebody he's met totally randomly. Oh, and, and this guy has taken him in. And then over the... the you, you wouldn't put that in a novel today. I mean, you know, there was, some of our popular writers do use a bit of coincidence from time to time, but, but they wouldn't do that today. You, mm -hmm. Modern reader is a bit more critical. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Well, our guest today was Ken Follett. You can find his latest book, Never, right here at your Kirkwood Public Library or wherever thrilling page turners are sold. Ken, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Well, Jagisha, I feel like we are long overdue for another fantastic Bicentennial History segment. 
Yeah, I would agree. It's been a minute. And so, seeing as it's also National Native American Heritage Month, I wanted to share a absolutely fascinating story of an adventurer that I have recently learned of. Ooh, do tell. Well, I've also been kind of keeping it in the realm of a lot of things that we've been doing lately about women who we don't know about, but we should have known about. So here comes one about a historical Missourian. Uh, But before we start for Indigenous Persons Heritage Month, I did want to start with a kind of a little overview that that I basically am pulling from the state's historical website. Okay. All right. What do you got? Hit me. It's the it's history. Uh, so, <laughs> and history hurts. Uh, when it became a state in 1821, Missouri had a Native American population estimated around 20,000. Native peoples within the state included Kickapoo, Shawnee, Iowa, Oto, Delaware, and Osage. Most of these nations had been driven to Missouri from from the east uh, by growing numbers of white inhabitants. The territory of the Osage, the most powerful tribe, included land in present Missouri, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Arkansas. In an 1808 treaty, the Osage had given up most of their land in southern Missouri territory, believing the treaty permitted them to continue hunting and fishing in this region. Conflict between Native and European Americans grew, as the Missouri's white population increased and expanded from its earliest areas of settlement along the Mississippi and Missouri rivers. And these were all ancestral lands of the Osage. Mm-hmm. So does the word Missouri, does that tell you? Uh, I know the word Missouri is Native Indigenous. Um, it is, and I'm going to get to it. Oh, okay. I am running, rushing you. you. You are. By the 1830s, most Native Americans had been pushed from Missouri. Many tribes passed through the state on their way west to the Indian Territory during forced relocations of the 1830s, including the Cherokees on their tragic journey along the Trail of Tears. There are no federally recognized Native American tribes within the state today, yet Missouri place names are of Native American origins. This includes the name of the state itself, which derives from the Missouri or Missouria, and I apologize if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, tribe which means the one who has dug out canoes, also translated out to the people of the river's mouth. Very interesting. Yes, and and basically I pulled this verbatim from the State Historical Society's website. So you can find it there, because that's where I found it. And I will have links in the show notes. So all you have to do is click on the link, and it'll take you straight there. Uh, Also, this is where primarily I got most of my information for today's biography. So... Here we go. Are you ready to hear about another amazing woman from Missouri? Of course. Well, our subject's name is Sacred Sun, or Mohango. Again, I could be pronouncing that wrong. It's not my intention to do so. And she was born around 1809 in Osage land that these days would be, we'd consider, central Missouri. The Osage were nomadic hunters They'd been trading furs with the French for European goods for ages by the, ta- by the time Sacred Sun was born. So when Sacred Sun was 18, she journeys to France. Twelve members of her tribe are selected for this journey, and the Y gets a little murky. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, a lot of different uh, websites that I went to trying to research Sacred Sun, they were all kind of pointing in different directions. And, and let me also preface that by saying that by no means am I a researcher, and we, I was using multiple different articles at the time. 
What is more more than likely, the Osage had sent delegations to D.C. in Europe in the past before, uh, often seeking solutions to their rapidly changing world and forced uh, displacement and hostility from the United States government as it continues to expand. They had a a long-standing connection with the French, so they might have been going to France to basically ask them for their advice or seek additional allies. It is also possible that their ex-escort, a French-born St. Louisan named David Dulani, tricked them into accompanying him to Europe for his pleasure and profit. In one article I read that basically said that he was going to escort them to D.C. where they would take their grievances to the government, but then suggested that he basically convinced them to go to France instead. But the French couldn't really do anything about their grievances, right? <laughs> well, I mean, like the United States at the time of, of that expansion, no, I wouldn't think so. But I mean, there was a lot of you know conflict with the French well mm. before. Uh, and at that time, St. Louis was primarily a French trapping settlement. Right, yeah. right. Whatever the reason, the Osage uh, had been preparing for this trip for years. They were collecting furs as means of payment, and these 12 tribesmen, Sacred Sun included, they all loaded up on a raft and set sail down the Missouri River to St. Louis. But near St. Louis, tragedy. The raft basically sunk, and all the furs were lost. Oh, no. And so half of the adventurers decide, well, they're not going to do it. So they head back towards the tribe while the other six basically press on to New Orleans and then eventually to France. So they got on a ship at New Orleans and then sailed to Europe. They did indeed. Wow, that's got to be one heck of a trip. Yeah, especially during that time period. They're far braver than I am. (laughs) I wouldn't do it today. (laughs) No. um, So anyways, Sacred Sun and the others arrive in France on July 27th of 1827. And we knew this because there were a lot of articles written at the time. And she is greeted by a crowd of excited citizens. Uh, Newspapers reported uh, descriptions, and there are even drawings out there that you can see online. A French writer, M.P. Bessier, gave this description. Their costume, their arms, the color of their reddish copper skin, the beauty and regularity of their immobile features, everything about them was an object of surprise. Everyone pushed near them to touch their hands and to receive them from a gesture gracious and full of nobleness. At first, Sacred Sun and her group were treated well by the French. Uh, they stayed in nice hotels, they ate rich food, they rode in carriages and attended operas. They even got to meet uh, King Charles X mm-hmm. at his palace in St. Cloud. Ooh, so they were treated really well. Well, okay. <laughs> yes, for a minute. But humans, being humans, of course, they lose their interest in things very fast. Mm-hmm. And so very fast, their uniqueness was completely lost on the French, and they had moved on. The, David, their guide, found it incredibly difficult to basically afford lodgings, afford food, afford everything for him. And he, he endeavors now, at this point, various ways to raise money, but it basically seems like he goes into, like, for lack of a better word, one of those painful Wild West shows that the uh, that the time period is famous for. While this is all happening, Sacred Sun herself is going through hardship all of her own. She has arrived in France pregnant, 
and and desperately wants to go home to deliver her child in the safety of the tribe back in Missouri. But on February 10th of 1828, she gives birth to twin girls, Maria Teresa, Maria Teresa and Maria Elizabeth, in a hotel in Belgium. And for unknown reasons, a wealthy Belgian woman adopts Maria Teresa, while Maria Elizabeth remains with her mother. About this time, David... Okay, let me just say, separating twins is evil. Yeah, yeah, and... Wrong. <laughs> again, there's, there's a... There's a lot we know about Sacred Sun because it's documented in European newspapers, but there's a lot we don't know because there wasn't a lot of documentations. And as to why this Belgian woman adopts the other twin, I, I would assume it's for financial reasons, but that would just be me assuming. At this point, uh, David de la Lune, he is in prison for his debts. And essentially, the Osage travelers are basically left to their own devices to survive in Oh, that's uh, terrible. So do they try to then just head back? They do. And they spend the next two years traveling for Europe a means to do this. Eventually, they, thanks to a newspaper reporting, the Marquis de Lafayette, he learns about their plight, and he makes arrangements to essentially send them back home. And so Sacred Son and her daughter get on a boat bound for the United States, but the, there is a smallpox outbreak aboard the vessel, and it does claim the life, uh, lives of the other tribespeople that were traveling with it. Not everybody went in that first boat. I believe three of the six were on that boat. So oh, no. she survives, as does her, her daughter, but the other two die uh, thanks to smallpox. They arrive in Norfolk in 1829, and they make it back to St. Louis in the summer of 1830. Once she does arrive home, she is idolized by many. A portrait is commissioned and painted by Charles Bird King. And this portrait would go on to hang in the National Indian Portrait Gallery for almost 40 years until it was destroyed by fire. Thankfully, copies of it still exist, and it is readily available to be seen on the Internet. I highly recommend you check it out. It's a very lovely portrait. Um, so, so what happened to her daughter, the one that was adopted? Well, both of them, I guess. I yeah, should. I was going to say, I'm afraid I don't know. Uh, so, basically, the story pretty much ends, going to be rather abruptly up ahead from St. Louis. The mother and daughter travel to rejoin their tribe, which now has been sadly pushed out of Missouri, and they are living in the Oklahoma Territory. Sacred Son is believed to have died in 1836 at the age of 27. She is widely described as adventurous and brave, but after that, to be honest, I didn't go looking too deep, but I did not find any reference of either daughters. Oh, that's too bad. So how long were they in Europe? A little over two years. She was only 27 when she died. That's She's incredibly young. Incredibly young. And I mean, this is just a briefest glimpse of the life of a very remarkable woman, a woman. But there are a couple of books in the collections which briefly mention Sacred Son. The largest portion of this biography was pulled from the State Historical website. Uh, which has m a much more expanded biography than essentially that I'm giving, uh, that I'm talking about here. So I, I definitely recommend that our listeners check that out. They also have a digital archive where I found a lot of those newspapers and a lot of like the portraits image and other images from those newspapers. So it is definitely worth checking out. Okay. Well, thank you so much for this. This is very enlightening, and I did not know the name Sacred Sun. I'm glad I learned. 
My pleasure. Well, that's our show this week. Thank you so much for listening. Jagish and I are off to lose ourselves in a world of intrigue and espionage. Patel. Jagisha Patel. But before we do, I'd like to thank author Kim Follett for being our guest. If you've not yet read, never. Well, what are you waiting for? Get over here at the Kirkwood Public Library because you do not want to miss Kim's latest. Join us next week when our guest will be author Nalini Singh with her new book, Archangel's Light. We leave you now with advice from the rib-tickling Jack Handy. Before you criticize someone, you should walk a mile in their shoes. That way, when you criticize them, you'll be a mile away. (laughs) And you'll have their shoes. Thanks for listening. Come on back next week.